has been an awakening. Have you felt it? Hello everyone. As you may have noticed, there was a Star Wars film out last week and we've been kind of blabbing on about it all year. Um, so we thought it only fair to dedicate a special little episode aside to talking about what we thought of it, because we were both hugely excited for it. Ed, did it meet any of your expectations? It met the basis, the most basic one, which was to be not as terrible as the prequels. So I think, uh, I, I, I genuinely enjoyed it, but I think that that, that is, uh, the bar it had to clear was low, but I felt that it cleared it uh, quite impressively. Mm. I think you and I will probably both agree that it was with it has its problems, mm. which we'll kind of get into. But the the kind of most exciting thing about it is kind of twofold. Really, one is it was a really enjoyable experience, which we haven't had from Star Wars in quite a while. And two, it kind of I'll speak for both of us here, but definitely for me, it really made me want to see the next Star Wars movie rather than the Phantom Menace or like the first Hobbit. Uh, you know, you came out of that thinking, oh man, there's two more of these I've got to go and see out of obligation. Yeah, it definitely felt like, uh, you know, it introduced great new characters that I am I was really excited to see and I really want to see have further adventures. And that is that is kind of the key thing it had to do, really. It, it didn't just have to, for the kind of further survival of the series, it didn't just have to bring back all of these familiar faces and you know, uh, we should probably say there will be spoilers for this and mm-hmm. uh, maybe thin the herd a little bit as we, uh, as we said we wanted in the uh, little episode we were talking about before, before it came out um, in the Christmas episode. Yeah, we did and, all right with our predictions, didn't we, I think? Yeah, I completely misguessed which of the characters would die. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the character I thought would die didn't show up until the last scene. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think your predictions were pretty uh, pretty spot on, it, particularly the idea of it being sort of kind of very much a remake of A New Hope. Mm. And I, I can I can really see why they did that. I mean, that's one of the biggest criticisms that's been levelled against the film, is that it is a retread of uh, the very first film. And when you kind of hear about the production history with there already being a script in motion and then J.J. Abrahams coming on, and then having to kind of throw out that script and start a new one, it kind of makes sense if you are at the front, if you're kind of piloting a runaway train that is going to reach its destination by hook or by crook, it doesn't hurt to retread what's popular, even though it's not really breaking much new ground, but it, it kind of makes sense. You can see why they went that way. And And it does feel, for me, it's the same thing that I always said about Avatar, which is that Avatar's story was almost insultingly simple but it kind of had to be because the whole point of it was to introduce this new form of 3D and this new technology and to really kind of push the boundaries of what you could do with digital cinema. And mm. if you wanted people to kind of get on board and to justify the enormous expense, you kind of had to graft it onto something that people would find very familiar. In the case of Avatar, it was a story that had been told multiple times and was very kind of well-trodden territory. In the case of Star Wars, I think if you're going to get people on board for new stories with new characters you are going to have to particularly after people a large number of people were burned by the prequels you have to lure them in with the promise of you know this is this is the star wars that you remember and and so it's obviously going to feel pretty familiar in that regard 
Mm. It's the, the whole act of uh, pouring new wine into dusty old bottles, I guess. Mm. But yeah, it's, uh, well, let's talk about what we liked about the film. I'll kind of kick us off by saying the, the, the thing that I liked the very most was um, the new cast. The, the four mm. principal leads of uh, John Boyega, Daisy Ridley, uh, Adam Driver and Oscar Isaac. Across the board, perhaps, with the exception of Oscar Isaac, because he wasn't perhaps in it as much as I thought he would be. But I hugely enjoyed every second those guys were on screen. Daisy Ridley was the kind of MVP of, of, of the whole film for me. But the thing that I really wanted from a Star Wars film, which it delivered in spades, was chemistry. And every time John Boyega was on screen with anyone, there was just chemistry aplenty fizzing all over the place. Yeah, they all seemed to be really invested in it they all seem to be trying to do the best work they could and it felt like the people behind the camera were determined to make these characters into new icons for a new generation as opposed to just kind of getting the actors out there getting to deliver slightly boring lines and just then waiting until you can have the next action set piece mm. and talking of set pieces the film does rattle along at kind of electrifying pace until it kind of gets the middle where it gets a little bit bogged down. Yeah, it is like a lot of Abrams' stuff. It's got fantastic momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think all of his all of his films to date have always they always kind of barrel along in a great deal of energy. They always try and get things moving as quickly as possible, and I think they always suffer a little bit when they have to try and deal with the add too much depth or to get really bogged down in the details of the plot and i think for me and I, I said this in my review the first 30 minutes of the force awakens is maybe the best any star wars film has ever been because mm. it's just relentless and it is building this new mythology out of familiar parts but it is essentially creating this entirely new set of characters for people it introduces them it does the rising and falling action thing beautifully you know where it reaches a crisis point and then it all wipe across to you know another character and see and catch up with what they're doing and i think uh once for, for me once han and chewie show up it does kind of lose a little bit of that because then you get into the whole point of every time a familiar face shows up you have to have they have to have like a hero shot and they have to do you have to invest a fair deal of time in letting them do what they do mm-hmm yeah and it, it kind of it doesn't quite help that whenever an older character from like the kind of the old guard as it were turns up it's a point at which a lot of exposition has to be delivered yeah which kind of slows it down a bit it does yeah i mean the the han and chewy one is maybe the best implemented in that because at least they kind of surround the exposition by these kind of high adventure sequences of them being menaced by a scottish guy (laughs) a Mm. very scottish guy (laughs) he's like the most (laughs) scottish man imaginable and the guys from the raid and those uh, raptors, I believe mm. they were called those mm-hmm. weird gelatinous tentacled creatures, which uh, you know at least was ex- an exciting thing to kind of make the lull in which they explain stuff kind of uh, a little easier to take. And also, it was not dissimilar to like the lull that occurs in A New Hope when Obi Wan has to explain everything to Luke, and they're just sitting on the Falcon waiting for stuff to happen. Mm. Mm. The one thing that I really liked about the film which really surprised me because I wasn't expecting it, is just how funny it is. Yes, that was a big thing for me. Considering how uh, humorless the prequels were, there was there was a, a deft sense of humour to the whole thing, uh, particularly just in like little moments like when 
uh, Kylo Ren has got some bad news. He's destroying his room essentially with his lightsaber and two stormtroopers are rounding the corner and they just <laughs> see the sparks flying and they just kind of like turn around and go the other way. Mm. You know, there's just like lots of little things with not even characters that don't even have lines, but they still find opportunities to just make things kind of, you know, fizzy and, and entertaining. And, and I like you say, Boyega has a lot of chemistry with everyone else and he does, uh, he gets a lot of the kind of the funniest lines and just being this guy who is a complete fish out of water who's trying to keep the fact that he's part of the First Order a secret from everyone. Mm. I think my favourite bit of it was when they land on the kind of ice base towards the end and it revealed that John Boyega worked in sanitation <laughs> and Han Solo says, what, you mean you didn't really have a plan? And he thought, yeah, we'll just go down there and use the force. And he's like, that's not really how it works, man. <laughs> that got a massive laugh in the cinema when I saw it. Yeah, yeah, that was that was very much one of the big laughs for me as well. I think there was just in general a, a sense to delivering as fun a film as possible i think that came across in everything from the script to the performances to the staging of the action uh you know it definitely seemed to be uh trying to make the most star warsy star wars films imagine film imaginable mm. and all the things that perhaps ev- literally every criticism that could be leveled at the prequels was, was is almost like explicitly dodged in um in this film in the sense that there's no kind of like long droning political backstory every kind of lightsaber kind of fight is very minimal and quite ugly and dirty and scrappy and kind of driven by the emotion rather than elaborate choreography it's almost as if it is they kind of served up the film that fans demanded i guess yeah i, I was actually thinking before we started recording about the moment when the star killer base destroys the home of the senate mm-hmm. and as i was as i was thinking about it i was thinking that's pretty much the most explicit way of saying fuck you to the prequels imaginable mm. because they are explicitly saying we don't want to bother with any of this political stuff so we're going to blow up the place where all of that would be happening yeah and i mean if if you kind of there is no expanded universe of Star Wars anymore. Everything's kind of canon now that comes out. And I believe that there is an, there's like a Star Wars encyclopedia or something that's come out at Christmas. And all that political stuff of everything that's happened since Return of the Jedi and now is like a paragraph. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> a huge thing of like uh, timelines and, and, you know, bills to disrupt trade routes and all that nonsense. It's just a paragraph. This has happened. Uh, let's just move on. The, uh, the to go back to the thing about the lightsabers, the thing that I really liked about it is it, like you say, it was bringing back the idea of a lightsaber battle as metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the the battles always had in in the original trilogy, they always had a purpose within the story. It wasn't just a case of showing off, uh, you know, the how good the choreographers were, which is what the most of the ones and the, the early ones were, mm-hmm. and the fact that it also was actual people really seeming to have air the trouble of the physicality of it all because they are swinging around actual swords at each other and they're having to parry and thrust and things like that it added a weight to it and and also you have the basic metaphor of kylo ren's lightsaber with the uh, the cross guard thing being you know essentially a way of letting out excess energy and having it have that slightly uh raggedy end uh, edge which basically seems to correspond to his character and the idea that he was someone who had difficulty with control which i thought was a nice use of something that could be just a like the double-ended lightsaber in phantom menace a really dumb prop mm-hmm. and kylo ren is a really really good villain in the, because one of the main things that i got from the screening that i was in 
is that everyone was very tense whenever he was on screen because they weren't quite sure what he was going to do. Yes, that was a very big thing. And I think that even uh, in the, the moment when he, again, spoilers, 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 when he kills Han, that is, there, there is that sense that it could really go either way. I mean, logically, it has to, he has to kill him because, you know, it was tough enough to get Harrison Ford to sign up for another Star Wars film in the first place. So it mm. would have been very difficult to get him to sign up for more than one. But in the moment, you do get the sense that that Kylo Ren is battling with the two with the the two aspects of himself and the question of you know can I kill my own father? Can I really commit myself to the dark side? And also, it is a very smart choice on J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan's part to have him kill it because it's the best way of establishing him as as a villain that people can genuinely hate because, mm. he, killed, because he killed the best character. And it's a really kind of neat play on what happened in the original trilogy. It's not about a good character struggling with the turning to the dark side. It's about a bad character struggling of turning to the light side. Yeah, and, and there's lots of echoes, which I guess is the nice way of saying shameless ripoffs of the original <laughs> trilogy. But that is that is one of the ones that works, for me, works very well and does have a real emotional impact, particularly when the film, after the Starkiller base has been destroyed, you get you know a, a good five minutes or so just to have people react to uh, Han's death, and you know it mm. does it does take a little moment to just say this is a major thing that's affected all of these people in a very serious and terrible way. Mm. Daisy Ridley's character Ray, the audience in my screening fucking loved her. There was cheers, which you don't really get with British audiences; we're very reserved. No. Um, there were cheers at the moment where, you know, Kylo goes to get the lightsaber out of the snow and it just starts to wobble and then shoots past him into her hands and she fires it up. You know, people lost their shit. And they should. She's a great character. She is played brilliantly. And I think that she fits into the, the role that all of the Star Wars films have kind of had, but often not as well of someone who is, you know, a chosen one who is a lot of potential that then needs to be moulded over the subsequent films. In the original trilogy, it was Luke and his kind of the difficulty he had was an important point of that and uh, in the the prequel trilogy it was anakin and the, the the way in which his potential was kind of mangled and bungled was a big problem of why the, that trilogy didn't work from a kind of dramatic level mm. of the returning cast we've kind of mentioned han it's really lovely to see harrison ford looking like he's enjoying what he's doing mm. yeah that uh, was yeah. a a big part of it yeah, he seemed to be having fun and he seemed uh, invested in it, which was cool. He kind of played it very nicely. Uh, Carrie Fisher didn't really have a great deal to do. And I, I really enjoyed Chewbacca. And it's, it's good to see that like it would have been easy to kill off Chewbacca, given the fact that the actor who plays Chewbacca is not in great health and he's pretty old. They're, you know, it seems to be keeping him on for, for the rest of this new trilogy. Yeah, it is, it is very nice that they kept the characters uh, alive that perhaps have the greatest potential to do stuff in the future films. Because I think that there is great potential for a story of Chewbacca becoming hard to control now that he has kind of a reason to be vengeful and angry, mm. which I think would be a very an interesting thing to play because he is, even though he's obviously a big, powerful alien creature, he's he's always been relatively kind of serene and good natured. Mm. So I think the idea of seeing him, if they if they want to go in that route, if they want to have him be someone who. Uh, can't control himself the next time he sees Kylo Ren. It could it could add dimension to the character that uh, he's never really needed, but I think you know could could play well in future films. Mm, mm. I mean, obviously, that's you're forgetting all of the backstory that came from the uh, Star Wars Holiday Special, Ed. <laughs> you know, it was Life Day. 
Yeah. Oh, wouldn't it be even worse if he if Han had been killed on Life Day, <laughs> the most important holiday in the Wookiee calendar? Not not today, guys. Not today. <laughs> Okay, the uh, the last kind of new addition that I want to talk about is uh, BB-8, the droid, who mm. everyone is in love with. Is an adorable character who is brilliantly realised, who has some great stuff to do. But thinking about it, doesn't actually do anything in the film at all. <laughs> doesn't contribute anything to the plot other than being the, the MacGuffin, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the same role that R2 played in the original. R2, obviously, it did a little bit of maintenance every so often. He, he picked a fucking lock every now and then as well. Yeah, BB-8 kind of doesn't doesn't do that so much. So you're right; he doesn't really do a huge amount of stuff. But he, what he does do, he does with a tremendous amount of charm. Mm-hmm. I think that the design of it is is amazing. You know, it's is great at accentuating his cuteness, and also it makes moments like when he uses his blowtorch as uh, as a thumb for his thumb up uh, mm-hmm. genuinely work, as opposed to looking really dumb, which is what could very easily have happened. Yeah, and my kind of uh, social media feed has been inundated with people who have bought their kids the little Sphero uh, BB-8 um, mm. and they're being chased around their living rooms by kind of family pets, which has made uh, front entertaining viewing. What do we think didn't work about the film, Ed? The, like I say, the the, des- the need to have kind of hero moments for the returning cast, I think, did slow it down a little bit and it did, did make it a little lumpier than it perhaps needed to be. I think that I, I don't know what the more uh, natural way would have been to get that to to work, but I do feel like there was there was something there that you know could have been smoothed out a little bit more. There was perhaps there was a perhaps a bit too much of the sense of them obviously knowing this is going to be the first of a trilogy and that there's they don't need to wrap they they are happy to let things dangle that maybe wouldn't need to in other situations. Like if mm-hmm. they went into it thinking, okay, this is just going to be one self-contained film and then maybe there'll be a little bit of leftover stuff if we get to make sequels which was basically the approach that lucas had to the original trilogy uh it may have felt a little more cohesive whereas this it felt like there was so much stuff left dangling for future ones that it, it kind of felt a little bit uh like they maybe weren't trying so much to make it work as a film in its own right mm, mm. i'm gonna get to my criticisms of the film in a second but i'm gonna answer one that i saw people kind of knocking around on social media kind of very shortly after the film came out. Uh, they kind of talked that there was a, a bit too much coincidence in the film. Like, you know, they steal the Falcon off uh, off the desert planet and then all of a sudden they're picked up by Han Solo and Chewbacca who have been looking for it and kind of other bits and bobs like that. To which I have to say, did you see the original Star Wars trilogy in which the opening scene sees Princess Leia um, send a droid in, and which escapes an escape pod that lands and is picked up by her brother... <laughs> on a distant planet or when Luke Skywalker flies to the Dagobah system and lands literally 50 yards from where, from where Yoda lives. I'm not really buying that as an argument. It's, 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 it's played very kind of loose in the original trilogy. So I really think it's playing to the spirit of, in, in this new film. Yeah, that didn't bother me at all. Cause the, the thing with Star Wars is it has its built in explanation for all coincidences ever, which is the force wills it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's why these things happen. It's because there's this all-powerful uh, energy force slash uh, small microbial creatures that apparently <laughs> determine people's destiny that are, you know, they're driving things. So it doesn't matter if things are, if if there is all this kind of coincidence because, you know, it's destiny and, and you know, it doesn't bother me too much. Also, you know, I don't want to have, because they're, they're big, crowd-pleasing, accessible blockbusters, they don't need to get bogged down in the kind of, 
the nitty gritty of oh he landed on the wrong side of the planet and then he just kind of rolled around for like seven years and then he <laughs> ended up in the right place yeah you don't you don't really need that yeah he had to work in a bar for a bit while he was you know saving up money he got kind of <laughs> stuck there yeah you don't want to get bogged down in admin do you yeah. um my biggest criticisms were i felt like the middle third had had either a lot of stuff changed or a lot of stuff removed um, and some of it is very obvious that's been removed. Like there are shots in the trailer, for instance, is one of uh, Maz Kanata's character passing a lightsaber to Princess Leia, which doesn't happen. Um, and I felt very much like the, that her character, Lupita Nyong'o's character, was uh, kind of a little bit sketchy. Like it seemed like there was more to that than probably came out. And there were rumours abound that there were reshoots going on as kind of late as this summer just gone. And I wonder if that was affected because it didn't really seem to add a great deal. That stuff it seemed to be a, making a big deal of doing a simple thing, like get the plot moving. So I don't know whether the character didn't really work. I mean, the two CGI characters for me were the weak link. The Maz um, didn't particularly work very well. And I actually thought that uh, Supreme Leader Snoke, uh, <laughs> performed by Andy Serkis, was really shit until it was revealed that it was a gag, that it was a hologram. Mm. I actually thought it was really bad. I thought this looks like kind of rejected Voldemort concept art. Um, and I really wasn't going for it at all. But when it was obviously revealed that it was a hologram, I was like, oh, okay, maybe there is more to this. And people have suggested that maybe there's a bit of an Oz vibe, like that that, is, that hologram is not actually what he looks like or who he is. And we're going to find out who he is kind of in future films or whatever. I don't know. But those two things seemed like the weak character links for me. Yeah, I mean, just the name Supreme Leader Snoke. Mm-hmm. It's 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 very hard for me to say without laughing. It just sounds terrible. It's yeah. a really it's a really bad character name that is very hard to take seriously. And even if he does fill the role of the emperor, who essentially in the the particularly in Empire was just a giant hologram, it's still he wasn't really that compelling. Even especially because he was placed against uh, Donald Gleeson and Adam Driver, who were both much more compelling as villains and. If they were going to have, you know, this uh, empire emperor surrogate figure, it felt like it could have been something they could have held back for another film. Yeah, uh, it feels like they we're kind of moving towards uh, those three teaming up with him in the next film. So maybe there'll be kind of some business there. The Mac- Maz Kanata character uh, just felt like they were kind of leftover bits of Yoda. Mm. stitched in with something and they kind of make an explicit uh, reference to the fact that she isn't kind of force sensitive but seems to understand an awful lot about it and uh, seems kind of yeah I don't know I don't know something about it just didn't quite sit right I mean I like the design and everything and I like some of the the gags that she had like when she asks Han where Chewie is because he's her boyfriend yeah Um, that was kind of funny but then ultimately it didn't really ring true that was the one that felt like the most obvious case of just having a character in for exposition. Mm-hmm. Because like like you say, that is when they go to that bar, that's the, pretty much the first time that the film really slows down and you, you do find yourself, even though it does have a the, the vision that Ray has, which is very nicely done and very well implemented and does offer a lot of tantalizing hints about what could happen in the future films. It doesn't really... It, it, there's not a huge amount, uh, apart from the vision, that feels that, that interesting. And, and like you say, it did, did feel a little too much like, we need a Yoda character, so we're mm. just going to have... <laughs> so we're just going to have uh, this this character fulfil that role and maybe come back in future films because uh, they don't reveal what happens to her after her uh, bar gets blown up. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, is she needed for the next film? Is like All she's really needed for is to get the lightsaber into, into Rey's hands. So it doesn't really feel like she'll come back at all or is needed to come back unless there's more to it than we, we kind of think. The other thing that I was kind of a bit confused by, and I wonder if stuff has changed, uh, was the scene on, that we kind of aforementioned, on Han and Chewie's new ship, the kind of freighter in which they pick up the Millennium Falcon. Now... We're introduced to those characters. Uh, Ray and Finn are now in their kind of uh, their kind of possession, as it were, with the Falcon. And then two gangs turn up. Um, one led by someone who seems to have wandered off the Glasgow streets, and then the other one played by the guys from the Raid. And it was a big deal that the guys from the Raid were going to be in it. And at the time when the casting was announced, the filmmakers said they've got a very specific action scene in mind. Um, and they needed those guys to do it, or having those guys would be a kind of a real bonus for them with that scene. Probably implying there's going to be some kind of physical action scene involving possibly some martial arts. Only for the scene in question to degenerate into a kind of a big kind of sequence with CGI kind of octopus balls. <laughs> and with the emphasis placed so heavily on practical effects and everything being done kind of in camera, as it were. It really sticks out. And I wonder whether something was really changed late that they kind of it wasn't working or something, or whether they had to say, Okay, let's just put androgynous monsters in there. I don't I don't really understand what happened there, but it just didn't feel like it felt like a scene that didn't belong in the film. Yeah, I mean the the only reason I think why they would have been included in that way is if there are some sort of plans for them to appear in a spin off of some variety. Right. Because obviously the 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 way in which Similar to what Disney have done with Marvel, introducing like um, Hawkeye and and in one scene in Thor and things like that. Maybe there is some sort of in between Star Wars story thing that's going to be more about them, uh, or they'll just kind of show up as antagonists in one of the stories. But you're right; it did feel a little strange, and it also seemed to play into the uh, accusations that they hired a more diverse cast just because people said that they weren't being diverse enough. And like, obviously diversity is great, but uh, there were, they only really hired people of colour after people said, there's an awful lot of white people in this film. Mm. Uh, and it does feel as if that maybe have been some sort of weird uh, tokenism in that they just basically said, yeah, we'll just cast these people and they'll be in one scene and they won't really do anything, but we can say that we were diverse as opposed to actually making some real effort to be diverse. Mm. Maybe someone was complaining there wasn't enough rough Glaswegians in Star Wars. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they kind of brought that guy in. I'm going to kind of move on to uh, something that seems to be a, a bit of an internet hot potato, which is the idea that the character of Ray is what's, what's known as a Mary Sue, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, means uh, a kind of a character driven by a kind of wish fulfillment rather than anything else. So a character put into something that is kind of perhaps ridiculously overpowered or kind of unrealistic and achieves their goals uh, without really having to overcome much struggle. Now, I think this was originated by Max Landis, wasn't it, who is somewhat of a Twitter mouthpiece? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one polite term for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, that, it, that's it, kind it was, of bullshit, isn't it, this thing? Yeah, I mean, the yeah, the, the, the basic idea of the Mary Sue, like I think the, probably the most famous example of it in the outside of like fan fiction, which I think is where the term mainly originates from, would be someone like Bella in the Twilight films. Not because the character is particularly overpowered, but because they are a character in a story where they are the most special character. 
mm-hmm. regardless of anything else. And I do think that it is bullshit and and the whole idea of Mary Sue, but like even the name itself does it, there's a gendered thing to it. There is a, a sexist thing to it because it gets applied so often to female characters who are basically as capable as so many male characters are in films. Because I guarantee if a male character did all of the stuff that uh, that uh, Ray did in the film and was as ta- as capable as her, people would not be you know kicking up as much of a fuss as they are. Mm. And people seem to be kind of un. un- kind of unfavorably comparing it to the original trilogy to which I respond where Luke Skywalker had like 10 minutes on the Millennium Falcon playing with that uh, little ball thing that floated around and then he fucking destroyed the Death Star with his eyes closed <laughs> <laughs> that is that's preposterous yeah the the original trilogy does basically say that you only need to be told what the force is mm. and then you're pretty good <laughs> you know you can do you can already start doing incredible things with it so it doesn't strike me as too difficult that her, after she's been told about it that she'd be able to do stuff. Also, the film doesn't really establish how powerful she is. And I think in, in all of the fiction, there is stuff about how characters who are really Force-sensitive and have a real affinity with it are can pick up that stuff pretty easily and it just takes years to master. Mm-hmm. But I think that she, she doesn't do anything in the film that, you know, Luke... I mean, Luke didn't have any training and he was still able to pull his lightsaber out of the snow on Hoth. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really seem that crazy that Ray would be able to do that when she's stuck on the uh, Starkiller base. So yeah, yeah. It, it, to me, it just seems a load of sexist bullshit, really. And perhaps sour grapes due to the fact that Max Landis, for those who know, who wrote Chronicle, Chronicle was directed by Josh Trank, who was fired from a Star Wars movie. So possibly, I mean, I'm not suggesting there's any connection between any of those things, but I'm pretty sure that's it. Uh, also, there was, even if it's not that, the fact that Max Landis wrote two gigantic flops this year, American Ultra and Victor Frankenstein, and basically doesn't seem to be a very good writer, <laughs> but mm. because he is John Landis's son, gets a lot of attention, and, uh, you know, obviously is kind of an annoying mouthpiece on Twitter, and, uh, yeah, that, that kind of comes across in the sour grapesness of complaining about a hugely popular film that he had nothing to do with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is always that to undercut him. Last thing that was kind of bad, I think, for me, you, me and you talked about it after we saw it, the final shot of the film. I mean, I think the final scene of the film is great. Mm-hmm. I really love that. Ray turns up on an island, which has been mentioned earlier, when she's having her mind probed by uh, what's-his-face, Rilo Kiley, and then she <laughs> arrives there, and Luke Skywalker's there, and he turns around, and you're not quite sure if he's really sad he's been expecting her, or he's going to fucking kill her. And that's a great ending. But then it's undercut by the fact that they do a ridiculous 360-degree helicopter shot around the island, which, kind of as it started, I was like, okay, please stop now at 180 degrees, because <laughs> this is going to become a little bit shit. And yeah, you, you said something like it was, it kind of felt like J.J. Abrams felt, he kind of thought he was directing a Highlander sequel. Yeah, it did have the exact same quality, and it did just make me wonder if... Instead of John Williams's music, the directed by J.J. James would have like a Brian May guitar solo just kind of <laughs> screeching out as people were walking out of the cinemas. It did it did strike me as stylistically and tonally completely uh, Ill, ill-suited to the to the moment and the emotion that they were going for, and mm. some something a little simpler like you know a static sideways shot of them on the island or. Uh, even just a, a close-up of Luke's face and then cut into credits probably would have 
served a lot better than this like really you know obviously clearly elaborate because they've had to get rent a helicopter and fly it around mm. a shot like that which just seemed like really really out of place mm. it's almost like they got the guy and they like, we paid him we told him his shot was going to be in the film we can't cut it um <laughs> but yeah it's, it's kind of it, yeah it sticks out a little bit to wrap it up now, where would you place The Force Awakens in kind of general order of the Star Wars films as they stand? I think I would put it third, slightly above Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think Jedi has more moments in it that, that kind of work for me just overall and maybe is a little more consistent as a film. But the like the Ewok stuff and the fact that it doesn't really know what to do with Han after saving him does kind of and the overall kind of more kiddie tone to it i think lets it down a lot whereas this one even though it does have its problems i felt i had a lot more fun with it i felt that it tonally was a lot more consistent yeah i felt the same way kind of i put it above uh, return of the jedi which does like you say waste han in a kind of goofball comedy role and yeah has some ridiculous writing in it that is we've kind of been over before so yeah i would kind of put it up there and i'm kind of pleased I'm pleased. I wasn't expecting it to touch the heights of A New Hope or Empire, but I'm really pleased that's exactly what I wanted from that film and exactly what I expected from that film when it delivered it. And I loved it, and I can't wait to see the next one. And I'm going to go and see it again. And yeah, kind of of the, all the films I've seen at the cinema this year, that probably they got the best reaction. Uh, you know, kind of a full house, kind of uh, going nuts for stuff they wanted to see, I guess. Yeah, and also in terms of. Uh... The, the the idea of Jedi wasting Han, I would recommend, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes, an article by Mike Ryan for Uproxx where he talks about the Force Awakens acting as basically a, a moment of redemption for the character of Han Solo by giving him the exit that Harrison Ford basically always wanted for him because he was gunning for them to kill him off from you know fairly early on in production in the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, that's a very good article that kind of gets to why his de- death in The Force Awakens not only is important for, you know, what's going to happen in the future, but is, you know, really important in terms of what the character means in the broader story. Mm. I'm really pleased that the way it's panned out, because J.J. Abrams, someone that we've talked about before, being a, a competent craftsman, someone who's a safe pair of hands to kind of steer the ship right, I guess, really has done his job without resorting to the kind of, Star Trek 2 or Super 8 kind of nonsense where, you know, things are promised and kind of end up being a bit of a damp squib. But I'm really excited at the fact that the the saga is now in the hands of Brian Johnson, who is a hugely exciting director, who even his kind of misfire, which kind of we've talked about before, The Brothers Bloom, is kind of an endlessly fascinating film. I wonder whether he's going to have enough kind of sack to be able to stand up to the studio um, and whether he, how much of his own way he's going to get. I mean, he seems to be very heavily involved with it. In the, I think he is the sole writer on the next script. And yep, he is, yeah. Everyone who's read it, which admittedly are the people who are working on it or have worked on the series, say that it's really good. But I think that if they're going to get a great film out of this, tri- this trilogy, I think that that maybe have the best chance of it because this one has, you know, it's it's got all of the setup out of the way. It has uh, re-established the series as a box office force in uh, a major way. I mean, we haven't talked about how well it's done uh, commercially, but it has, um, at the time we're recording, it looks likely to have broken the record for the fastest film to earn a billion dollars 
worldwide and it's currently on pace to earn something like 800 million dollars in the US mm-hmm. which is pretty much unprecedented in you know in modern times and and certainly if you uh, adjust for inflation the last film to get anywhere near that were like Avatar and Titanic mm-hmm. so uh he has obviously there's a lot of pressure riding in it but I think he also that that level of success maybe makes it a little easier for him to kind of play around because they can be pretty assured that in 18 months time people are going to show up to <laughs> to episode eight yeah and it, i think it, it sets it sets the table so nicely for for kind of episode eight because you've got kind of ray Chewie, and r2 kind of doing their thing with luke and we're going to kind of you know is he going to come back and join the resistance or is he going to train ray or whatever and then what's a kind of a really exciting prospect for me is you've got finn and uh Poe Dameron and BB-8 who are going to kind of knock about with the, the Rebels or whatever and go on, kind of do some daring do. Which, that's really exciting because uh, Oscar Isaac didn't have a great deal to do in this film. Captain Phasma, is it? Uh, Gwendolyn Christie's character was built up as being a major character and she didn't have a lot to do, but obviously she's being set up as, as a kind of a big bad, perhaps, for these next films. So perhaps the things that let this film down slightly are going to be used as, you know, they're, they're there for the next film. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been given an amazing array of actors, great characters, and a platform upon which to do, you know, really, really good work until Colin Trevorrow fucks it up. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So I think he's in a good, he's in a good place. Is <laughs> Ryan Johnson. Mm. And a little bit like, we've kind of mentioned this before when we talked about Wasted Potential, the cast that the prequels had was great. Like, you know, if you say, well, you're going to make a Star Wars film with Ewan McGregor, Liam Neeson, Natalie Portman, Terrence Stamp, a whole bunch of other people who are kind of exciting, but then you don't give them good characters to play. That kind of uh, defeats the object. Whereas this, it's great actors, well, really good actors in great parts. Yeah, and that is that is the reason to be hopeful. And like that, I basically ended my review of it by saying this is the most hopeful I've felt about the future of Star Wars for for quite a while mm, um, since Caravan of Courage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's our review of Star Wars, everyone. Um, I know you've kind of been desperate to hear what we think about it and have probably been holding off reading all reviews until we've released ours. So, you know, go about your business now you've heard it. There's two episodes out this week. Uh, This one's the first. Next one is our year-end special. Um, So once you've done this, head over to that and enjoy that. And we'll see you over there. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Here's some money. Go see a Star Wars.